Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good morning from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. It's a wet morning again. Jason is here with me, and we have with us this morning Hunter Bowman. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you here. So what do you think the deal is with these headphones, dude? I don't know, but in the continued, ever-present, persistent, persnickety gerbils running around and some of the electronics in this podcast studio. The reason I'm introducing the last couple of times, one, the last one I did, uh, Jason had mouth issues following the dentist, and this time Jason's headphones, for some reason, he's not playing the music, so he can't hear the music, therefore he can't give the intro. I can hear you, I can hear Hunter, I can hear myself, cannot hear that one. And as I said to him, if I hand you my headphones and you can't hear the music in those, then... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the problem is you, yeah, that's, not the uh, headphones. I would put money on me being the problem. I, I promise you. <laughs> I'd, no, I won't go that far. Hunter, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a little while since we talked to you. I guess last fall sometime we talked about ryegrass, I think. I was thinking about what I was going to ask you. I didn't come up with anything just revolutionary. And so my brain automatically goes to kids. Little man's bumping on 10 months now, nine and a half or so. What's your average over and under on sleep? Um, He wakes up about twice a night. At first, uh, it was pretty nice because, you know, you gave him a bottle and he went right back to sleep. And I was like, that's that's good. You know, we're not losing a whole lot of sleep. But then after that goes on for 10 months of being woken up every three hours throughout the night, it kind of starts to wear on you. So. Now he's <clears throat> standing up and he's bumping on being mobile. So then you're really going to be if you're not sleeping and he's mobile whew. oh yeah uh two nights ago we set up from about 2 a.m to about 4 a.m watching tv because he decided he was not going to sleep was there anything good on at that point what were you watching cartoons uh, we watched miss rachel she's a speech pathologist that does this youtube channel huh. it's educational oh my god that doesn't sound fun <laughs> at all <laughs> have you ever seen tv when the tv channel cuts off I don't think he's old enough to witness that. I don't think he is either. Yeah, no. That was a phenomenon that typically happened to those of us that were what, like, children what, of the 11, 70s. 1130 or midnight or sometime? I think it was after the Tonight Show. They'd play the national anthem. Yep. And, and that's just it. Till <laughs> and you went scream with lots of colors and bars. They don't yeah. do that anymore. Till five or six the next morning when the news came on. So you could either look at that as we actually live in a better world because now there's just junk to occupy the time, or we live in a worse world because there's junk to occupy the time. I'm going to go with the latter. No doubt. We don't really have TV. I mean, we've got YouTube TV, so we can watch a few things, but we mostly we just watch Netflix or Hulu. or. Yeah, we watch a lot of stuff on DVR. We don't have cable or satellite or... Nothing good on it. Nothing good on it. Yeah, there's nothing good on it. It's all trash. Got a hundred and some odd channels of junk. Rice crop, how's that going? It's up this year. I think we're up, you know, back to like the mid-2015, 2016 era on acres with the exception of what, 2020? Tom, did you know that was an era? Did you you know we had progressed into a different era? Mm-hmm. Hunter was doing a lot of different things 10 years ago. <laughs> well, in fact, based on the years that you listed, that was not 10 years ago. 10 years ago would have been 2013. I hijacked you, but that just jumped out at me. <laughs> and I didn't know you in 2015, so I guess it was a different era. It was a different era. <laughs> we were here. Not much was different. Things were affordable. Life was good back then. 
Uh, it, it was a simpler time, Tom, back in the old days. Back in the good old days. So were you like, it's still in high school? <laughs> you weren't even driving at that point? I was finishing up my undergrad. Oh, my. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Acres are up in the new era. <laughs> it's a new era of rice. <laughs> Sitting right then, what, about 125,000 acres is probably where we'll stand this year, something, give or take a little? I started out saying 115, and then from everything I'm hearing, uh, everybody's saying 120, and it's still going up. Passed a trailer full of seed, guy hauling seed to somebody, what was that, Wednesday? And texted him and told him, said, man, that's a lot of returns on that trailer. That must hurt. He said, in fact, this is a new sale that I wasn't planning on. So, How's the rice look that's up? Sick. Uh, can you expand on sick? A lot of spots, herbicide injury, maybe disease, uh, a lot of white rice. You know, with the weather we've had, basically, if you got rice up, you're going to see some command on it at this point with the cold, rainy, lack of sunlight. Unpack that a little bit on uh, planning date. So I know we had some go in in March. Ironically, 2023, the weather was a little bit better in March than it <laughs> was the first week of April. I mean, or, I'm sorry, than it was the first week of May. And, and certainly the latter half of April between rain and cooler temperatures. So is there a line like the stuff that's come up in this latter half of April, cold, wet, compared with the maybe a little bit older stuff might have taken a little bit longer to come out of the ground but it's bigger going through the cold wet period even looking back last year in my research program we basically got all of our rice planted at this point and we were just starting this time last year so that just tells you how far ahead we are overall Uh, but a lot of that stuff that was planted early took so long to come up as opposed to the stuff that was planting you know later in april it's not really that much of a difference as far as how far along it is at this point. And I think you see that a lot. It just takes longer for that early stuff to come up. And it might have spiked and kind of sit there for a while and not did a whole lot of growing. And the stuff, the later stuff's kind of caught up to it. Spots, Tom. Spots on little rice can be a lot of different things. There's a lot of herbicide injury. Unfortunately, a lot of that is paraquat of varying levels of severity. But then there's other things that make spots too, particularly in the cold, wet weather. And, you know, you and I have looked at stuff and and certainly traded pictures back and forth when we have weather patterns like this. How can you delineate some of that stuff to know that you've just got to get some heat and sunshine and you don't have a more insidious problem like a, a drift issue? My mind wanders to the, man, that's tough. Call, ask, get us some plant samples. It's the best way to really consider that. The disease thing's difficult this time of the year. You know, cool, wet weather, you typically figure any of your seedling diseases that are typically soil-borne, your pythium, your rhizoctonia, you can have a good bit of that. And, you know, then the first response is, but we had a seed treatment on. Well, once that emerging seedling comes through the soil profile, that seed treatment's essentially done its job. You're not going to get much benefit from that in that plant. So any of those things that you get puddling of water, water standing in a place, that's a perfect environment for something like pythium. It's a water-loving fungus. And the only reason I say fungus anymore is that I was trained in the old days, in an older era. 
And at that point in time, man, it was, that's like three or four eras back, right? Though. Right, according, according to Hunter, that maybe even five. And at that point, Pythium was still considered a fungus. Now they consider it within the algae. What? It, it's considered algae because it has a motile zoospore stage. Yeah, exactly. It has flagella on the thing. It. Kinda, I don't know what that is, but I know what. The difference between fungus and algae is... Or, You'll probably cut this out. It swims like a sperm, except it has two flagella on it. It has two. Uh, my day's done. Uh, I've learned something. So. <laughs> Blew his mind again. What I look at on the occasion that I end up looking at these field situations, usually there's a some kind of pattern to it when it is possibly diseased. So there's going to be... Even on very well-graded ground, there's going to be a little bit of, there's going to be a pothole somewhere, not necessarily a pothole, but, you know, a little pocket that held some water, skim of water, and you can sometimes, depending on the soil texture, you see the flakes and stuff if it's dried back up at that point, to know that there was some water standing there at one point. And a, a thing that I have started thinking in more recent years, usually if you're trying to decipher whether we're looking at a potential disease issue versus a drift issue, depending on severity and a number of factors, a lot of times where you would expect to see bad stuff with disease, you would expect to see good stuff with drift. For example, you said low places, right? Think about wheel tracks through the field. If you're looking at a disease issue, chances are the rice that's down in the bottom of that rut, little water standing, it's probably, if it's a disease, that could possibly be the sick area. Usually on drift, again, depending on severity, wind direction, all that, oftentimes when you look at something and it's drift, the wheel, tr- the rice in the wheel tracks is green. And then if you think about the edge of that tractor track where the, the dirt's humped up a little bit, Likely no water standing there, so in a disease situation, that rice is probably a little bit healthier. But if it's drift, it probably caught the herbicide moving across in the it's wind. It's hammered currents. versus everything yeah. that's in the bottom of the wheel track. Absolutely, and you know, downwind sides of pads, or you know, on a little older rice, if the levees are up by that point, you know, those those types of situations, you got to look at downwind. Stuff, if you can find downwind stuff around clumps of ryegrass, Hunter and I were looking at some the other day, and we probably spent a, <laughs> an unusual amount of time digging around some clumps of ryegrass with no real clear-cut answer to what we were looking for. Field diagnostics falls within the category of art form. Well, and it's experience. my favorite part. Oh, I, I agree, It's it, but it, it can be difficult, but it, it, it's a fun challenge. It doesn't have to be drift either. It can be command damage, which is not uncommon, particularly on cool, wet weather like we've had. But they just present differently in the field. But there's a lot of overlap. I mean, you could have you could have command damage combined with maybe some disease incidents in the field, and, and then not only do you have two different things going on, you got two different things that are interacting, and maybe one's making the other one worse. And then it just really gets unclear a lot of times. And, and I tend to say, and I think sometimes more flippantly than not, that seedling disease in most situations is a small part of the field. It's not going to occur on the entire field 
whereby something like a foliar disease might be the entire field, depending upon the susceptibility of that particular plant to that organism. Really hard part to wrap your mind around. Again, comparing ceiling disease to drift, the one we've dealt with most often this time of year in recent years has been paraquat drift. You know, the roots are a pretty good telltale too. It's hard to see a stuff going on with a rice root with the naked eye but if you just dig it up and get the mud or dirt off of it usually if the rice is not dead in a drift case it's still going to be white with paraquat drift whereas with a seedling disease you might have some you know root tips that are turning brown or bigger sections of roots that are sloughing off even depending on, again, how severe the incidence is. They'll be mushy and rotted, and then the hard part becomes if somebody wants you to do a post-mortem. You can't necessarily always bring that back to the laboratory. Stick it on a a growth medium to grow in the laboratory, and I promise you stuff's going to grow off of every plant in that field. Doesn't mean that that's what caused the issue. Another thing, talking about the different spots in the field where you see stuff, so that's rice that we looked at this week. There was a low spot in the field where they still had some corn stalks and they had no-tilled through them. So that's where you would expect to find more disease. And that rice was just as pretty as could be in that section of the field versus the rest of it that had all the drift on it. So, I mean, that was a telltale right there that you knew for sure it was drift. Got a little bit of protection. Oh, yeah. So what about the spots, Tom? On the leaves, a lot of times those can get really confusing too. They're all confusing. Uh, they're hard to tell apart, especially when you if you if you factor in any of the herbicides we use and how those may produce injury on the actual developing rice seedling. Trying to cut all those out and whether something was actually produced by a fungus that caused disease can be difficult. Lots of times, if it's something like rhizoctonia, it'll be a big band on the actual leaf blade, similar to what you see like in the turf grass arena. So it's not necessarily just a little tiny spot. It's something that'll be a little larger. Bleached out, it'll have goofy little margins. You know, with the drift, oftentimes with paraquat, I mean, you think about the necrotic dead spot on the leaf, but then depending on what was mixed with it, it might have a red halo around it, or it may not. And you're more typical of what you expect to see on a corn leaf with off-target movement. Of and those will all grow junk if they've been out there long yeah, enough. Yeah, because it's a dead That's it's right. A dead spot. It's, a, it's a buffet for something that's in that field situation that just needs a little bit of nutrition to do what it wants to do. Based on our acreage breakdown then, Hunter, you said somewhere on the order of 120,000 acres. What's your percentage split then on something like row rice versus paddy rice? So I don't think the percentage as far as, you know, from previous years is that much up on row rice. We're probably somewhere between 15 to 20% row rice acres. But with the acres being up, obviously that makes a lot more acres than row rice. You know, with the diseases issues we're already seeing, the herbicide issues we're already seeing, I think those problems are going to be worse in row rice because of the situations that they're in. Most of our rice cultivars are not developed for that environment, uh, so we see a lot more disease in there. And then also, being in a row rice situation, you get a lot closer to other fields like soybeans or corn or something where you might get off-target movement from herbicides, get some drift. Uh, so I think those problems are going to be a lot bigger on those acres, and I think that's where a lot of the issues we'll see this year are going to come from, most likely. 
I know Tom and I did an article in Rice Farming Magazine, I'm not sure if it's out yet or not, uh, talking about, you know, some of the diseases to be watching for in row rice this year and what we thought might be an issue and how to deal with that when they do arise. Yeah, I think I think we talked about blast, leaf blast, and certainly the, the whole different environment that you're putting rice under in that particular situation is important because, as you alluded to, and I, I don't know how many times I've said this, but we're not developing rice cultivars for production in a row rice system. We typically develop rice cultivars for growing it in a flooded paddy situation. So when you change that particular soil class, any of the actual constraints of that field environment, you can actually throw a curve into that whole entire system and something will look different. And, you know, I've had plenty of consultants call and say that they think they see more sheath blight in row rice situations than they do in paddy rice. And that's probably because you're putting that plant under some different stressors because you've changed the overall irrigation or the water use potential of that plant. I think the biggest thing with that, with the row rice, like you mentioned, blast is going to be, you're probably going to find blast in a row rice field. So just watching for it and timing it right so that you can do something about it when if you do have it you know, at the time when it becomes problematic as you start moving towards heading. And, and I think with that statement made, you will see some blast probably on, on leaves at that point in time. Doesn't mean it's going to be problematic. In most situations, and at least the conversations I've had, the conversations that we've had talking with consultants and field reps and all the rest of that, we tend to choose more blast-resistant varieties or cultivars to plant in those row rice situations. But with that said, that doesn't mean you won't see a little bit on that plant. And that certainly isn't cause for alarm. Again, you've changed the environment whereby that ends up changing how that plant's going to respond and even how that fungus responds with the plant. So the whole host pathogen relationship type thing doesn't mean it's cause for concern at that point. I mean, that's definitely something we'll address as we get to that point in the in the year. Call Tom. Since we're on row rice, let's just talk briefly about the management. I started to say contrast, not necessarily contrast, but just the the way that we think at this point in history that in this era that we need to manage row rice. For example, in my in my world with the herbicides, it's not terribly different than than what we do in flooded rice. I think I'm a little bit more bullish on residuals. Really just don't go across that field with a herbicide that you don't have something in there as a residual. And I'm kind of seeing the same tune on flooded rice, but I think there are situations there where you don't like a late pre-flood application. You know, basically if you got the well running, then, you know, maybe there's a situation if you can get it flooded up pretty quick where you would bypass a residual or had the luxury of bypassing a residual. I don't think that's the case so much in the row rice. The other thing I'll say about weed control, we do end up with some, screwball weeds, right, that we don't necessarily deal with in our flooded rice. Johnson grass has really become one that they get a lot of questions about. Crabgrass is always... Teaweed. Yeah, teaweed's been a problem. Crabgrass has been a problem for a number of years in those situations where we've had acres dedicated to that production system. None of those are really game changers, but they do, they're outside of your 
thought process when you're thinking about rice herbicides. So you got to be a, a little bit creative there. What about the nitrogen management? So, you know, there's been a lot of stuff done with that, looking at it. They've done, you know, everything from, they call it spoon-fed approach, where you're basically going out there with 100 pounds every week for about four weeks. Uh, from all the data we've generated so far, going heavy early, you know, at that four-leaf, what we typically call our pre-flood application, once right before that rice starts to tiller, instead of just doing 100 pounds, going a little bit heavier, uh, seems to produce, you know, higher yields from the data that we've got. Basically, from talking to everybody and trying to figure out, you know, dive into that, I was trained in herbicides, so fertility, you know, is a new thing for me, really. But what we think is happening is that when you put out more nitrogen at that stage, you're setting more tillers so that plant is getting ready to produce more because it has the nitrogen available and it thinks it's going to be able to produce more. So, you know, only doing that 100 pounds early might actually hurt us. So we go a little bit heavier in the end, then we come back about two weeks later, then another two weeks after that with another shot. So breaking it up into three shots. And then another thing a lot of people talk about is going heavier on the top side of the field. And from all the data we've seen, basically that first 150 feet or so out from the pipe, you can't do anything about. Uh, you're going to have lower yields there. So trying to dive into that now and figure out what's going on in that top 150 feet. Are we just shocking that rice with cold water out of the pipe? Um, is it a nitrogen effect? Are we washing that nitrogen out of that first 150 feet? There's a lot of things that could be going on that we're trying to figure out with that. But All of the above. <laughs> essentially what I would say now is – don't dive too far into the first 150 feet. Just let it be what it's going to be, and don't don't waste a whole lot of money trying to correct if you see a little yellowing in that area. If we've learned anything, we've learned that the plants down that row are just going to produce differently, just the nature of that system. So you look for your value in that system from other areas, right? It's not going to be a consistent, pretty yield map necessarily. I mean, you don't want huge contrast in your yield maps, but may not be as consistent as you would expect to see on maybe a soybean map of the same field. And I would say with the yield maps we've generated, uh, you know, Dr. Drew Golson has a PhD student, Anna Smiley, working pretty extensively on this, and she's got some heat maps going down the field, stair-stepping, you know, every 20 feet or so. And you don't see that much of a difference in that top where we're not able to do anything about what's going on there, 10, maybe 12 bushels versus the rest of the field. Uh, it's not anything drastic like 30 or 40 bushels, though. Hunter, thanks, man. Appreciate you dropping in here on a Friday morning. So I'm going to get this turned around pretty quick and get it out to y'all uh, early next week. I've enjoyed riding with you, looking at stuff. Tom? That's good information. You know, call us when you need us because I think the diagnostic situation early in the season can be a little overwhelming. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.